from Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org. I'm Robbie Feinberg with the news on this day in Maine, Friday, February 9th, 2024. This Day in Maine is made possible by listeners and by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation. Offering crawl space repairs and waterproofing, easternbasements.com. A complaint against Oxford County Sheriff Christopher Wainwright will be investigated through a formal process ordered by Governor Janet Mills. The governor received the complaint on Wednesday from the Oxford County Commissioners asking for the removal of the sheriff for failing to faithfully and efficiently perform the duties of his office and for acting outside of his legal authority. The request follows a number of investigations into Wainwright's conduct. Wainwright says he has made mistakes, but that none of his actions warrant his removal. Through an executive order on Friday, Mills appointed former Maine Supreme Judicial Court Justice Donald Alexander as hearing officer. A date for the hearing has not yet been set. The Mills administration hopes to fast-track a bill that would provide $50 million to communities to repair infrastructure damage during recent storms. Kevin Miller reports. Governor Janet Mills told lawmakers last week during her State of the State address that she would include the $50 million allocation in a larger budget bill. But lawmakers likely won't finalize that budget until spring. So on Friday, Mills' office said she would introduce a standalone bill that she says could expedite the legislative process. Coastal and riverfront communities were hit hard by flooding, storm surge, and powerful winds during three storms that hit Maine in December and January. Mills wants to move $50 million from Maine's billion-dollar rainy day fund into a special program for infrastructure adaptation. That program provides grants to repair or improve roads, culverts, stormwater systems, and working waterfronts. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Kevin Miller. Maine is getting more than $4 million from the U.S. Department of Energy to enhance and upgrade its electrical grid after extreme storms caused millions of dollars in damage this winter. Dan Burgess of the Governor's Energy Office says the Maine Grid Resilience Program will award the money to innovative projects that will serve the parts of the state that were most affected by this winter's storms. Storms like that, which really underscore the need to utilize these federal funds to make critical investments so that uh, Maine homes and businesses have access to reliable electricity. So I think it's good timing that these funds are being made available to Maine. Burgess says a funding match is required for bigger projects from utilities, storage operators, and other entities that apply. The funding is the first of several awards from the federal government for grid resilience. Applicants can learn more at an informational meeting on February 28th. Applications are due March 28th. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is making unemployment assistance available to Mainers who lost work because of the severe December storm and flooding. Employees or self-employed residents whose jobs were affected must first apply for state unemployment benefits through the Maine Department of Labor. Those who are not eligible for state benefits may then apply for FEMA aid. Applications must be filed by March 4th. And now it's time for Maine's Political Pulse, our analysis of politics and government here in Maine. I'm joined by Maine Public's chief political correspondent, Steve Missler, and our statehouse correspondent, Kevin Miller. 
It was a very busy week in politics, both in Maine and across the country, and one of the biggest stories was a bipartisan border bill that now appears dead. A group of Republicans and Democrats in the Senate had hammered out an agreement over the past few months, but a majority of GOP members shot down the measure amidst pressure from former President Donald Trump. Steve, I want to start with you to get a sense for what this signals about where immigration fits into the current political moment. We've heard the GOP really push this border issue for years. So what would this bill have actually done? So, Robbie, one of the biggest complaints from Republicans about the border is that the asylum process is in desperate need of overhauling because, in their view, it's just too easy uh, for someone to declare asylum. And because there's an extensive backlog of asylum cases in immigration courts, people who are granted temporary access into the U.S. can remain here for years while their cases are adjudicated. The border bill that imploded this week would have dramatically overhauled the asylum process by raising the standard to claim asylum. And more dramatically, it would have given the president clear authority to completely shut down the border when border agents are overwhelmed. Additionally, those who are granted entry into the U.S. would be allowed to obtain work permits while their cases are settled, which is something that Maine political leaders have been pleading for for years. So how did that party wind up really shutting this down? What's interesting, Robbie, is that the Democrats didn't really get much in this bill except maybe a chance to claim that they're doing something about the border. And that seems to be the primary reason why a majority of Republicans blew up the deal. That and that Trump told them to. Now, as you mentioned, Republicans have been hammering the border issue for years. And while Americans broadly favor immigration, there's been a noticeable uptick in those who want more restrictions. So Republicans and Trump see the border crisis as a useful campaign issue. And some of them were pretty upfront about that, telling reporters that they had no intention of handing Biden and the Democrats a quote unquote win in an election year. So after four months of negotiations, they torpedoed the compromise. This is a compromise that they demanded. They basically said, we will not support any foreign aid to Ukraine, Israel, or Taiwan without this border deal. So that's what the negotiations have been focusing on for the past four months. But all that is kaput at the moment. Yeah, see, I remember a few weeks ago, we were hearing a lot of optimism about this from senators like Susan Collins and Angus King. They were saying that this bill was probably going to get through the chamber. What was their reaction to the, the, the deals falling apart this week? Yeah, Collins is actually one of the four Republicans to support the bill, and she played a pretty key role in including this, uh, the asylum work permit provision. She's been relatively quiet since the deal imploded, but King has been making the rounds and tearing into Republicans for scuttling a deal that they literally demanded last fall. It looks like what's happening is, and this certainly is coming from Mr. Trump, is they want the issue, not the solution. So right. you want, you, they want the chaos at the border in order to hammer Joe Biden, hammer the Democrats in the fall. And that was King on MSNBC shortly before Wednesday's failed vote to advance the bill. Also, I don't think you can understate how much pressure Trump and conservative activists put on Republicans to scuttle this deal. Uh, during the debate, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford, the lead Republican negotiator, talked about the avalanche of misinformation and a threat he received from an unnamed commentator he spoke with before any of the bill details were released. That told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. By the way, they have been faithful to their promise. 
Langford then lamented the governing by press conference that seems to be all the rage in Congress these days, but doesn't solve any problems. Kevin, uh, it doesn't feel like immigration has necessarily been a, a major statewide issue at quite the same level as the, what we're seeing now. Why do you feel like it's rising to the surface in this way locally this year? Yeah, well, some Republicans have tried to make this an issue during previous campaigns, but it never seemed to resonate with voters. But a lot has changed here in Maine in recent years. We've seen just huge numbers of uh, asylum seekers arriving in Maine since pretty much 2019. For the most part, Mainers have tried to welcome and help out these new arrivals. And you know, many of those are families that arrive with almost nothing. But that does put a strain on the fairly limited resources that are available from social services programs like general assistance. And, you know, all this has been happening at a time when a lot of Mainers are struggling. You know, they're struggling to keep up with skyrocketing inflation and high energy costs and just to find apartments or houses that they can afford. It seems like some of the rhetoric around immigrants and asylum seekers really seems to, to be changing as, as well. I'm thinking about what we heard from Republicans in, in their response to the, the governor's state of the state address. Yeah, things are becoming more heated. Uh, here's actually a Republican minority leader in the Senate, Trey Stewart of Presque Isle. Under current leadership, Maine has rolled out the red carpet and turned into the northernmost all-inclusive resort for anyone and everyone. Free new housing, free health care, free food, you name it, we're giving it away. Now, I don't think a lot of people would see a cot in the Portland Expo as a very nice all-inclusive resort, really, but you know, Republicans are repeatedly bringing up this issue of free housing, and uh, here's House Republican leader, Representative Billy Bob Falkingham of Winter Harbor also hitting that point. I mean, I know a lot of people in my neck of the woods that are struggling, uh, people that are living in way too crowded environments, families that are uh, living in trailers with tarps over the top of them that can't afford to live, that, that uh, would love to have some free housing for them too. And the state, as well as cities like Portland, have set aside millions of dollars to house these asylum seekers, who, as Steve just mentioned, can't legally work for at least six months and oftentimes longer because of these federal laws. Steve, going back to this Senate bill, do you have a sense for, for what the failure of the, this bill could mean for Maine? Um, I'm thinking particularly of issues like that asylum seeker work authorization piece. Uh, if nothing changes there, I imagine that that could maybe mean more state resources that could be needed moving forward. Yeah, I think you're precisely right, Robbie. I think, you know, states can't unilaterally change that work permit restriction. Only Congress can. I mean, the feds made that pretty clear recently when they rejected a request by Maine to change that rule. So that means states and localities will have to provide financial assistance to asylum seekers in the interim. And you just heard from Kevin how Republicans clearly don't like that either. So it's sort of this loop of them identifying problems but then rejecting compromise solutions. And that was Maine Public Statehouse correspondent Kevin Miller and our chief political correspondent, Steve Missler. You can listen to the full Political Pulse podcast online at mainepublic.org slash pulse. William Janelle of Bridgeton has been working with wood for most of his life. He built furniture in the basement as a teenager and later took up sculpture, shaping rough blocks of local native hardwoods into eagles, bobcats, and other wildlife. These days, he's trained his chisels on a new subject, chipping away at slabs of white walnut, oak, and cherry, and piecing them together to create music. 
Keith Shortall stopped by Janelle's studio in western Maine and spoke with the artist. This kind of came about out of the blue. I really had no intentions of building guitars five, ten years ago. <laughs> this has just been like a, a, a weird little left turn, I guess, in life. Janelle says he had a traumatic life experience a year and a half ago that made him want to step away from sculpture and turn instead to guitars. First, he dabbled in making cigar box guitars with three strings and has since graduated to custom-carved six-string solid-body electrics. Each guitar starts out as a block of locally sourced hardwood, which he clamps to his work table in a small one-room studio that's down the driveway from his house. Once the slab is secured, Janelle methodically shapes it with a mallet and chisel. Do you have in your head an image of the carvings? Where do the ideas come from? Uh, as far as the carvings, some of them are told to me. I don't want to sound a little weird, but uh, the wood kind of gives you some impression as to what it is. And in other cases, I try to force my will onto the wood. Uh, oftentimes, uh, not always as successfully as I want it to be. At one edge of this unfinished guitar face is the head of a blue jay carved in relief with pencil marks indicating other details of the design. And the tail and the other wing will come out here. And that basically is a you know, confined by the, the shape of the guitar. So you want the work to show that it's made by hand? Absolutely. Um, uh, the chisel marks kind of leave like a fingerprint uh, of, of, the, of the work. Uh, I've always liked using hand tools. I, I just like the, the tactile feel, the rhythm, uh, and, and just the pounding away at the wood. Even the machinery that Janelle uses to build the guitar's electronic components is homespun. I'm going to go slow at the beginning. To make the pickups, which convert the vibrating strings into electricity that can then be amplified into sound, he uses an old sewing machine bought at a thrift store to spin long strands of wire as thin as a human hair into a coil. Um, the, the amount of winds affects the sound. Too many makes it a very sparkly, very uh, powerful pickup and too few makes it very weak. And the idea is to go back and forth enough so that way you're creating space in between the wire so it's not one wire on top of another wire. Uh, How did you learn to do this by the way? I went to the University of YouTube. I love YouTube. <laughs> After about two or three weeks of work the carved body, neck, headstock, pickups and bridge are assembled, and Janelle is ready to plug in. The body is made out of white walnut. The top is made out of uh, quarter-sawn white oak. The neck is also made out of quarter-sawn white oak, and the fretboard is made out of cherry. 
I, I love playing the guitar. Uh, it's it's kind of like a Zen moment where you're just like losing yourself, and and so is carving. When I'm when I'm wailing away on a piece of wood and I'm totally focused on what I'm doing, that's kind of what what I'm um, there for. Uh, the 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 you know that that old trope about uh, it's it's the journey, not the destination. Uh, for me, when it comes to carving, that's always what it's been. Uh, and, and now guitar building, it's the same thing. William Janelle of Bridgeton is the maker of Feathercrest guitars. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Keith Shortall. That's today's Maine News. For more stories, visit mainepublic.org. And coming up on Maine Calling at 11 o'clock on Monday morning, we'll discuss hearing care and what sorts of hearing aids and other options are available. I'm Robbie Feinberg. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.